0: well good morning morning. welcome to those who are joining us in the fellowship hall and online this morning we are into chapter 2 of our mark my word series through the fast-paced gospel of mark and in the series of stories we have today we get a snapshot of Jesus at work seeing the impact of his words and actions and you might notice every time Jesus speaks or acts people are surprised Whenever Jesus does something, the reaction is, what just happened? What's going on? What does this mean? Being around Jesus was never boring. (laughs) Where Jesus is at work, surprising things happen. Does that surprise you? If you've been a Christian a long time, these stories of Jesus might seem so familiar, it can be easy to forget how shocking Jesus' actions actually are. When I was in seminary, I read a book about a spiritual danger to watch out for as a pastor. The book warned us not to let our hands become cauterized by holy things. That means that danger is, in being surrounded by things about God and service to God, then in all that tasking, one might lose sensitivity to the movement of God himself. And the recommended treatment? Keep your heart open to awe, to wonder to the mystery of God. You see, whether a person is convinced that they believe in God, or they're convinced that they don't, people who think they already know everything about God are bound to be surprised when they actually encounter Him. The human mind and heart cannot contain all that God is. So if you think God is boring, you clearly haven't experienced Him. So what can we learn about what surprised people about Jesus in these passages that we just heard? Well, in Mark 2, it starts with the word getting out that there is a man in town who could heal people. And it had been a few days since Jesus was last in Capernaum. And by this time, chances are, everyone knew a friend of a friend who had been healed by Jesus. And, of course, everybody knew someone who needed healing. So when they heard Jesus was back, they show up in spades. And some of them carry their paralyzed friend there. And seeing they're not going to be able to get him to Jesus through the crowd, they climb up on the roof, they tear a hole in it, and they lower their friend right in front of Jesus' face. They risk destruction of property and angering the crowd because they believe Jesus is the answer for their friend. And in this moment, all eyes are on Jesus, all ears attuned to what he'll say. Would he heal the man? Would he chastise the friends for jumping the line? Or destroying the host's roof? Out of all the things people might expect Jesus to do, what he actually did was none of the above. He looked into the eyes of the paralyzed man and he told him, son, your sins are forgiven. What? (laughs) Who saw that coming? (laughs) Not his friends, I'm sure, who were probably thinking, okay, but what about his legs? Or the gossip-seeking crowd probably thinking, what in the world did he do? Or the Pharisees, whose scripture tells us we're thinking, who does he think he is? Nobody can forgive sins, but God, that's blasphemy. In short, everyone in the room is shocked by Jesus, all of them for different reasons. The first being, Jesus hadn't ever done this before. In all the healings he'd performed with everyone else, he'd never proclaimed forgiveness of sin over someone. Only here. Why? Because only Jesus sees what's really going on in the heart of this man. Only Jesus knows where his healing needs to start. And if you look at the text, it says that Jesus sees faith in the man's friends not in the man himself. So that might give us a clue as to what's happening here. That maybe this man has a sin from his past that he thinks is unforgivable. And maybe over the years he's come to think that that sin is the reason he's been allowed to suffer. That it's a punishment he deserves for whatever that sin was. And for that reason, he doesn't believe any prophet of a holy God would heal him, even if he could no matter how much his friends believe. Have you ever fallen into that kind of thinking? When something bad happens to you? Jesus sees the healing this man needs can only be received by him when he knows the deepest secrets of his heart have already been seen. The deepest regrets of his life have been heard. And not only can he be forgiven by God, but he has been He is forgiven. Now you and I will never know why that man couldn't receive healing from Jesus until he first heard that he'd been forgiven. But Jesus knew. So that's where he starts. And this isn't the only heart that Jesus is considering here. In this crowd, Jesus also sees the hearts of the Pharisees need to be challenged out of what they think they already know by being confronted with evidence that he has the authority to offer that forgiveness. And honestly, I think we need to see that too. So Jesus says, what's easier to say, you're forgiven or get up and walk? If I have the authority to command one, I have the authority to command the other. So he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And he does. He's forgiven and healed. And just like that, the Pharisees are shocked out of their snap judgments into actually really asking the question, what can this mean? And the crowds are shocked out of their opportunistic mindset, and they're moved to wonder, awe, and praise of the living God because they say to each other, I think we just saw God move right here and now. We've never seen anything like this. They're moved to awe and wonder. And then Jesus goes out beside the lake to teach, and as he's walking, he sees a hated tax collector sitting at his booth named Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. And what does everyone expect here? That Jesus will call him out as the traitor to the people he is? Use his life as a cautionary tale of what happens to a life when one puts love of money ahead of the love of their people. Or maybe Jesus will just ignore him, walk by him as if he's not worth noticing, because people are pretty sure he isn't. But what does Jesus actually do? He turns to Levi. He looks him directly in the eye and he personally invites him, you follow me. Now there's no way he's gonna, but then he does. He gets up and he leaves the money and he follows Jesus. What just happened? Did Jesus just call a tax collector to be his follower? What is this? What is going on? Nobody saw this coming. Not his disciples, not the crowds, certainly not the Pharisees. I mean, who is this guy? Declaring people forgiven by God and healing them. Calling dirty, conniving tax collectors as his disciples. And then he proceeds to go to Levi's house for dinner. To sit down and eat with more tax collectors and sinners and outcasts of all kinds. And you can imagine the confusion of the Pharisees. Because they've just witnessed, for the first time in their lives, a godly miracle, like the ones they've read about in the scrolls from the ancient days of Elijah and Elisha. And now they're trying to figure out how any of this makes sense with what they know of a holy God and his laws. I mean, calling a tax collector to follow him, that's shocking, yes, but at least that implied he'd leave behind what he used to do and start doing something new. But sitting down and sharing a meal with people who had given no indication they're interested in repenting, what is that? Rabbis didn't do that. Respectable teachers of the things of God don't do that. I mean, what were people going to think with him hanging out with those kind of people? And to their credit, being completely baffled at this strategy, they actually ask Jesus' disciples about it. Why? Why? Does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, what's the goal here? And again, Jesus himself answers their question, saying in Mark 2 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I think for us today, we're so familiar with those words of Jesus that we don't even register how shocking they would have been to everybody who heard that answer, even shocking to his disciples. Wait, God sent you, but you didn't come to call the righteous? But isn't the Messiah supposed to call the righteous? I mean, everyone's expecting the story to be the Messiah rallies the righteous ones to his holy cause and they stand up together against the unrighteous Romans, reestablishing the kingdom of David, right? But you didn't come to call the righteous. You came seeking to call sinners? You're here looking for the spiritually sick? What good does that do? I mean, what kind of kingdom can you hope to build from that? Again, I'm sure you understand their confusion because think about it. In every other story in the past, didn't God gather the righteous remnant and work with them? God always got the attention of and worked with the people who were already seeking him, trusting him, listening for him, like Noah and his family in the flood, like Abraham and Lot as opposed to Sodom and Gomorrah, like Gideon and the few brave men who chose to fight over those he sent home, like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in exile. God has always called out the righteous ones, the ones who are already seeking him. To shine like the sun in the midst of a murky world, in order to use their lives to show the world who He is, to achieve His purposes. But now, when the long awaited Messiah Himself finally appears on the earth, He's not looking to gather up a posse of the righteous. He's not looking for the best of the best law-abiding Pharisees to usher in a new era with him, but he comes like a doctor looks for the sick. He comes looking for sinners, looking for those who have been separated from God, who maybe have even given up thinking they ever can be reconciled to God in order to reconcile them to himself. What kind of Messiah is that? And I'm sure that some of them, certain they already know what God wanted and this couldn't be it, turned against Jesus in that moment. But others, I'm guessing, were troubled by this confusion of miracles and wonders next to these surprising actions, and they went off seeking answers with the only tools they had. They went to fast and to pray, to seek the voice of God, completely unwilling to entertain that maybe they had just heard it. And seeing them go, the people notice the marked difference between these two groups. Because Jesus' disciples are not fasting, they're feasting. They're breaking bread with the broken. But don't people who seek God's will humble themselves and deny themselves food and drink and frivolities? I mean, the Pharisees, even the followers of John the Baptist are fasting. So they have to ask, why did they fast, Jesus, and your disciples Do not. How can we recognize you as a man of God when you're not doing what we expect a man of God to do? And again, Jesus' answer shocks them to the core because it's so not the kind of answer they expected to get to their simple question about fasting. Because Jesus' answer is, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, as long as they have him with them. See, things are different with Jesus' disciples because he is different. He isn't just a man of God. He's more. Now, people have fasted all through human history to humble themselves, To help them tune out the worldly things and tune their whole being into hearing the Lord. But when the Lord is right in front of you in the flesh, you don't need to do that. (laughs) Why would they need to fast to hear God when God was present and speaking to them? Nobody saw that coming that God wouldn't just send a new human prophet to be given the title Messiah, but that he would send his own presence into the world, the triune God present on earth in the person of the Son of the living God. It's not appropriate to fast when you're with the one you've been waiting for all your life. Think about it. If a celebrity were to come over to your house to have a meal, you're not going to invite him to join you in your juice cleanse, right? You're going to throw a seven-course meal. Jesus' disciples didn't fast because it wasn't time for that. It was time to tune into the one who was present with them, absorb all they could in that moment. But then Jesus delivers another shock by telling them that this won't always be the case. In Mark 2.20, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So you're, you're saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one who is bringing in the kingdom of God, the one we've been waiting for. And this is the power of God that we've been seeing working here in you. That's incredible. It's exciting, amazing. But just when I'm starting to get it, starting to believe you are the one, starting to get excited about all this, now you say you're going to be leaving? You're going to be taken away? Where would you go? Now that the Messiah has finally come to establish the kingdom of God, how could it possibly serve that kingdom for you to be taken away? If God is doing all this, why in the world is he doing it this way? Showing up in power to heal, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, to call tax collectors to eat with and seek out sinners, feasting instead of fasting, and then leaving What could God possibly be doing with all of this? Nothing here is what they expected. So Jesus explains why that's the case by giving two very practical, very earthy examples. Jesus says in Mark 2, 21 through 22, no one sews a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So, what's Jesus saying here? Let's start with the metaphor of the patched garment. Throughout history when God's people sinned, turned their backs on God, chose to disrespect him and hurt one another, humanity continually ripped hole after hole in the fabric of our relationship with God. And in his love for us, God made a way with a sacrificial system for his people to repeatedly patch the fabric of that relationship with the tatters of our stilted repentance, acknowledging through sacrifice each betrayal, each disloyal action had a cost. But no patch ever had the strength or the beauty of the unbroken original. And as time went on, those sacrificial actions seemed to replace heartfelt repentance and a commitment to mending our right relationship with God, which is what righteousness means, with instead an enforcement of outward laws of behavior that we instead called righteousness. And those patches became less and less about mending a broken relationship and more about paying our dues, slapping on a patch, until the fabric of that relationship became more patches than garment and it became apparent just how ragged we had become a humanity once made in the image of god clothed in glory and honor now retaining only a shadowy resemblance to the beauty of that original gift and what the pharisees what the people were expecting in a messiah was a better system for producing patches a patching system that would reinforce the fragile old one When instead, Jesus came to bring us something else entirely. A brand new garment. To clothe us in his righteousness alone. To replace the tattered rag of our failed attempts to make what was broken whole with his complete one. Jesus tells them and us, he's not doing what we expect. Because the time for doing the things in the old expected ways are over now. You can't patch an old garment with a new fabric. If you try it, the new patch will shrink and it'll only end up tearing the old garment more. The old garment has served its purpose. Now it's time for a whole new one. And Jesus, God, will bring a new kind of righteousness for all who would receive it whole from him. A new covenant. And the process of receiving it won't look like the patchwork you're expecting because it's different. But it's the same kind of garment. And we need it. But now we need to be clothed in one who is stronger, a garment of his own making that's whole and unblemished and beautiful. Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to bring you a better, less noticeable kind of patch that the righteous can apply to their broken places. I'm coming to bring you all a whole new garment and everyone is eligible for this upgrade. All who will receive it from his hand. And so he starts by offering it to those that the righteous won't think to invite in. Starting with those who think they've been disqualified already. So that everyone will know this gift is for all. And if that garment metaphor didn't speak to you, Jesus offers another one. When you make wine, you have to put the elements in a new wineskin, one that's pliable, because during the fermentation process, which isn't pleasant or pretty if you stumble on it in the middle, (laughs) the gases expand, and that wineskin is stretched to its limits. And during the process of fermentation, it needs that room to expand, to let those gases stretch, even as it's contained in the wineskin, before it settles into the rich, deep, and flavorful wine it will eventually become. And over time, those wineskins will harden and be firmed up with age as the wine settles. And all of that is right and good. But if you're making new wine, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins because they're too calcified. They can no longer expand enough to allow those new grapes to ferment as they need to in order to become that new wine. So, if you try to use an old wineskin to make new wine, when the new wine starts to ferment, it's going to burst those old wineskins. And you'll end up losing both a perfectly good wineskin that you could have stored aged wine in or anything else, and you'll lose the entire new batch of wine you could have produced. So, when you're making new wine, you need something strong enough to be able to handle the abuse of the stretching process of fermentation that will take it to become the new wine in its place of completion. In the past, God's law was given to humankind to help to shape us, to give us boundaries, to show us the form of what it looks like to live our lives in God's image, loving God and loving people. And yet, time after time, the fermentation of our rotting sin burst those bounds leaving us unable to be redeemed, unable to settle into the rich righteousness that God intended for us. And we tried to solve the problem by making those wineskins stronger. We tried to reinforce the laws with other laws, hoping that our sinful nature wouldn't be strong enough to burst them this time around. But all it did was burst both the law and us. No wine produced, only rotten grapes spilled out. So now it was time for a completely different process. And when Jesus, the Messiah of God, came into the world, he didn't do what was expected. He didn't look like what they expected because his end goal wasn't trying to get people to be able to achieve righteousness for themselves by the law. He wasn't trying to get them to pretend that what was rotten in them wasn't rotten. (laughs) To pretend they could become what they were meant to be by the law. Instead, he came to be in himself the new wineskin for our sake. He came to be the one strong enough to handle the abuse of all of humanity's rotting sin, whose love could stretch enough to hold us, contain us, until he could add the ingredient necessary to bring us into a brand new state by his grace alone. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become his righteousness. In order to become new wine, we needed a new wineskin. And so Jesus came in the flesh and he came calling sinners to himself that through him we might be made saints of God. Jesus doesn't do what we expect because he came to do something that no human being could do, what only God himself could do. And the kingdom Jesus is bringing into being will not be founded on the works of the righteous, but on his righteousness poured out for us, poured into us, his righteousness holding us until by his love and grace alone we are redeemed and renewed and restored. So, what does that mean for you, beloved? Do you feel like you're too tattered to be patched anymore? that you've made too many mistakes, ripped too many holes in the fabric of your relationship with God or others? If so, surrender that rag to Jesus. Let him clothe you in his new garment of grace, clothed in his righteousness alone. Do you feel like your life is existing in crusty, immobile limits of yesterday's wineskins? You can't imagine growing past where you've been. Be poured out into the new wineskins of Jesus' grace. Because he makes beautiful, flavorful, rich lives out of those anyone else might just write off as being rotten. He's not done with you yet. Jesus comes to call sinners to repentance to show us new life is possible, transformation is possible with him. Jesus doesn't come to call the righteous for the very good reason that no one is actually righteous. (laughs) And people who think they are who think they don't need a Savior, aren't going to be interested in meeting one or receiving from him what he has to give. But in showing us that he comes to meet those who know they need him, Jesus models for us what it looks like to be the people of the kingdom he's building. So we know what it looks like to be his hands and feet for others to show them what he wants them to know of who he is. The kingdom Jesus comes to establish is not one that leads to people fighting one another. The establishment of this kingdom brings a fight, but it's against the powers of darkness for the sake of the human beings that he loves, against all that would separate us from God and one another, and the victory is found in one life restored to him at a time, one prodigal come home into the waiting arms of the father at a time. This is the kingdom the Messiah of God comes to bring in, one of redemption, restoration, and new beginning for all those who will let God remove the tattered rags of the patchwork of our sin and give us instead the garment of salvation that will never spoil or fade, a gift we can only receive humbly as a gift from him by his grace alone. And as messy as we are, we can trust him as we are in process that he and he alone gives us the grace space we need for him to make us into new wine. And he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So as we close today, I'd like to invite you to ask Jesus what rigid preconceived notions of him that you need to let go of in order to see his true heart for you, to see the Messiah, the Savior he came to be for you, and to ask the Lord what is the new work he wants to do in you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the new covenant that holds us, that makes us new. And in your blood shed for us on the cross, Lord, your life laid down and taken up again in resurrection for us. You show us, Lord, that there are new beginnings that you want to give us, that you want to renew in us because of your love for all of humanity and specifically for us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us again to be surprised by your grace, to live in the awe and the wonder of who you are. Lord, we pray today that you would draw us to understand and to know your gospel truth, that this is all what you have come to do for us. Help us to live in the joy of that promise. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.